0: invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word available to you, to join me. Three scripture texts we'll read, and I apologize. Somebody asked me just before service, the texts, and I did it off the top of my head and realized I pointed you the wrong direction. So, Matthew 16 is where we begin, Matthew 16. From there to Acts chapter 2, and from there to First. Timothy chapter 3. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say, Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to him, but who do you say I am Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the son of the living God Jesus answered and blessed are you Simon bar Jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven brief glance at this this past Sunday night. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Acts 2 42. This is after the sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 had believed and were baptized added to the body of Christ and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And finally, 1 Timothy the 3rd chapter having laid out the requirements of character for both elders, overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy 3:14 Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In case you're wondering what he means, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the Word of our God. Let's pray. Father, now by Your Spirit, may Your Word be effective. According to Your promise, grant now in the preaching Clarity, insightfulness, may we learn, may we grow, may we be challenged, may we be brought to repentance and a deepened faith, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On the 15th of July, in the year of our Lord, 1911, a group of Baptists agreed to sponsor a tent revival meeting. The tent was secured and pitched on the corner of Springfield Avenue, National, and Commercial Street. The meeting continued till Friday night, August 11, 1911, during which time 44 professions of faith were made. And a total of $81.21 was raised and dispersed for the minister's hire and other expenses. Now, if you wonder how much that translates to, I was a little shocked doing the math. Eighty-one twenty-one in 1911 translates to $2,300 in today's dollars. At the close of the meeting, a number of persons began to consider the need of a church in that vicinity. A paper was circulated wherein the signers agreed to consider the propriety of a church organization. By the way, I'm quoting directly from the first minutes of the church here. On August 14th, a number of these signers met in the tent where the revival had been held and went into a church organization. A motion carried to organize a missionary Baptist church, Articles of Faith and Church Covenant, J.M. Pendleton's Church Manual, which, by the way, was the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith, the foundational document we've used for the confession we are proposing. After electing officers, taking the names of the charter members, they asked for a recognition council, which met on the 14th of September, 1911, organized by electing Elder S. Forrester as chairman and J.M. Payne secretary. The council proceeded to examine the articles of faith and covenant of the church that had been adopted and the list of members, and without any changes, the council, Now understand these are the. Pastors and leaders of area churches that have been called to say, Yep, we agree with you, you're a church. Uh, they gathered, they voted without change to recognize Seventh Baptist Church as a regular to constitute Baptist church, gave the church the hand of fellowship. The council adjourned, the church members' meeting was begun. Elder J.M. Payne was given the privilege to send an article regarding the founding of the church to the Missouri Baptist State paper, The Word and Way. E.T. Sloan was called as the first pastor on the 24th of September, 1911. He received a majority vote. Who would have thought Baptists would disagree on anything? And the motion that was made that it be a unanimous call, and that is what occurred. Then in 1924, Seventh Baptist Church became National Boulevard Baptist Church, which remains to the date, this date, the legal name of the church. Boulevard has, in 110 years, had 20 lead pastors. Two of us take up a little better than half of that time. Of course, none of us compared to Wayne Garrison, who marked 38 years plus here. And we are considering our proposed confession of faith, and we come to the article today, the church. We believe that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers, united by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Scripture portrays the church as the bride of Christ. The church ought to observe the ordinances of Christ and be governed by his laws. The church also exercises the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in her by his word. Her only scriptural officers are elders and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in Scripture. We believe that all Christians are called to be to service within the body of Christ, and that God has given to both men and women roles within the church. We also believe that the office of elder is assigned only to those men who are called of God and affirmed by the church in fulfillment of the biblical teaching. So, who are we? Why? Why are we here? Often referenced, I was a grew up in a farm community and on a farm, and I was part of the FFA. Our FFA meetings, you had all these little set pieces you did, and if you were this officer, there was something you said, and another one. Then all of us, uh, future farmers, why are we here? And we had this purpose statement that we recited. I will admit that it being nearly 50 years after the fact, I'm not sure that I could recite it and it wouldn't benefit you if I could. What are we doing? Could it be that something like this could be in our future? On an Easter morning in the early 2000s, lurking in the shadows, a figure rarely seen in church, it's Superman. Yes, Superman. Superman. He who leaps tall buildings in a single bound as he pursues evildoers. No, wait a minute. It's actually not Superman. It's the senior pastor, all decked out as Superman, ready to communicate the gospel to a new generation. For you see, Superman is a Christ figure, peculiarly adapted to conveying the Christian message to generations raised on Sesame Street, cartoons, and superhero action figures. So, On this day, the pastor was poised to begin his instruction in a new series, how to leap over discouragement, overcome doubts, defeat odds, and rise from the ashes as Superman had on many occasions. David Wells, in his book, The Courage to be Protestant, cites that story. Another An advertisement for a megachurch with the traditional church in mind says church, quote, is about avoiding hell, not sitting through it every week. And I love what Wells said here. If the traditional church is so inept, so out of it, so not with it, passe, passe so completely washed up, so painful, so pitiful, so boring, why not let it die peacefully? Why keep on kicking it? Because the real target's not the traditional church, but the traditional theology it lives by. The belief system is at the heart of the traditional church's life that seeker sensitives are after. It's not they want to deny it or reject it, But it's something of an embarrassment to them. At least in their own churches, they want to conceal it. We discount the importance of the church. For we don't see it as the Lord's church. We don't see it as an apostolic institution of Christ. We read three texts. There are certainly far more that could have been read. But in just the bit that we read, we have seen... Jesus founds the church. He builds on a common affirmation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that affirmation doesn't come from our own fevered imaginations, our own thinking. It has to be revealed by God. When Peter said it, the Lord doesn't say, Congratulations, Peter, you're smarter than the other 11. Rather, my Father Reveal this to you. Further, the church will triumph. The church has a sudden expansion. And once that expansion happens on the day of Pentecost, four commitments made. Literally, they were strong toward the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Those four things marked that early church. Paul will say in Timothy, the church is God's household. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. A common thread in all these texts is that the apostles are essential in the founding of the church. It's to Peter, an apostle, that the Lord says, on this rock I'll build my church. Now, Peter's not the rock in the sense that Rome wants him to be the rock, but his confession is foundational, and further, his office and that of the other apostles is essential. The Pentecostal converts hear the preaching of many, including the apostles, but especially Simon Peter, who preaches. And Paul, as an apostle, gives instructions that are to be obeyed because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the instructions are about the church. The New Testament model for the church is a church built on Christ as witness to us by the apostles. Now I know, some of you say, well, why don't you say that the church is founded by Christ? That's true. But Christ used a specific means to get that done. And he did it through his apostles, human beings like everybody else here. I hope that one of the things you take from your regular reading of the Gospels is this. If the Lord can take those men and do a glorious work through them, he can use you. That ought to encourage you because these men show all the failures, all the foibles of every single human being. They loved Christ, but they were flawed. So if we speak of an apostolic church, and I'll admit, folks, I'm I'm hitting one aspect of this. This is far larger If I addressed every single issue that the confessional statement addresses, this would be a series all by itself. So I've got to pick and choose. What do we mean by an apostolic church? We do not mean what the Roman Catholic Church means by an apostolic succession. We do not mean what charismatics mean when they speak of apostolic signs and wonders. Some think that being apostolic means that you don't have any denominational affiliation. That is not what the text is addressing. Here's what we can say when we speak of being an apostolic church. First, the continuation of Jesus' intention. What Christ declares in Matthew 16 that he's establishing. Matthew 16 where he says, You are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ intended for there to be a gathered assembly. He uses a common word, church. Now, that comes to us from the Greek. It comes from the Greek word that almost every Baptist knows, ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiastical. And the word ecclesia was not a particularly religious word, all it meant was a called out assembly. It could be used of a political gathering in Greek or Roman culture. It was used commonly of the synagogue as those called out and gathered together. But Jesus had an intention. Simon Peter and the apostles heard that intention. Paul expands on this in Ephesians 2 at verse 19 when he says, to these Gentile believers, You're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. This is Christ's intention. Not a physical temple with a geographical address, but a living temple of His people scattered throughout the world with each local congregation as an outpost representing that larger body, the mystical body of Christ. It's a Continuation of Jesus' intention. It's further a continuation of Jesus' ministry. What Jesus began, He continues. Let us never lose sight that what we confess when we confess about Jesus is we believe in the incarnation, right? Christmas is coming, children. You do know that, right? Children, it's going to be about three, four months, and you think that feels like years. Your parents suddenly just went into panic mode. I don't have near enough yet. (laughs) Got to start shopping early. We believe in the incarnation. We believe in the atoning death on the cross. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the ascension. But there's something that sometimes gets left off. We also believe in the ascended, reigning Lord. And that Christ is present in the world through the body that is the church and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We trust that God is at work through His Son. And it's intriguing. If you get a chance, sometime you ought to read a great two-volume work. It's one of the best works on Christ and the church. It's called The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, both authored by the same fellow, Luke. And. Luke, as he opens Volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles, as we know it, says this. It's a very interesting opening. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, did you hear that? He doesn't say, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught, but what he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to whom? The apostles, whom he had chosen. My friends, this is the continuation of Christ's ministry. An apostolic church is the extension, the continuation of it. Further, it's the continuation of Jesus' authority. When you read in that Matthew 16 text, he says to Peter, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind is bound, whatever you loose is loosed. Now to us, that's weird language. What do you mean blinding and loosing? What's that all about? In the rabbinic culture, that was very clear. A rabbi could say to you, you must do this. You are bound by God's command to do this. Or you are loosed, you are forgiven. You actually are all right. There's no worries here. And so whenever Jesus tells Simon Peter the authority of binding and loosing, what he's saying is this, through this apostolic witness, through these men, you're going to found the church, and the church is going to have this authority through the gospel of binding and loosing, of declaring right and wrong, not as it makes it up itself, but as it continues what Jesus has taught. The early church recognized this unique authority of Jesus through the apostles. Peter, in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, verse 15, he's writing to these Christians. says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And then he makes this note. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, folks, i got to tell you, if Peter acknowledges there are times that Paul is hard to understand, it makes me feel better about my own studies. But notice what he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Do you see what Peter just did there? He knew the Old Testament was scripture, but what he does is affirm that what Paul writes as an apostle is also of the same authoritative merit and weight as the Old Testament. It's the continuation further of Jesus' message. The message is this gospel message. This message cannot be altered. There is one central gospel message. When you read later in Paul, especially 2 Timothy, he will say to Timothy, Timothy, guard the deposit of what you've been given. There was a content to the faith that was to be held and embraced even at cost of death. It had to be held on to. And that could not be altered. Paul will go so far as to say, if you mess with the gospel, may God curse you forever. When in Galatians he uses these words, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached you let him be accursed and just in case you didn't get it if we said as we've said before so say I now again if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received let him be accursed so an apostolic church is measured by its fidelity To Jesus' intention, his ministry, his authority, his message. How then is that modeled when you get to the New Testament? Here is the apostolic model. First, there is Christ-centered preaching. Now, why do we talk about that so much? Because, friends, it is far too easy to miss Jesus if you intend to, or sometimes even if you don't. This is why you don't hear sermons up here on life management. How to fix you. Four easy steps to get over depression. Five key steps to raising your children so they turn out all right. 97 easy steps to fix your marriage. A series. (laughs) Some today seek to drive a wedge between Jesus and His words and the apostles. That is disaster. My friend, you don't know anything about Jesus were it not for the apostolic witness. And to somehow say that what the gospels say is really important and what the epistles say and what the rest of the New Testament says. Not so much. They kind of got confused. They messed it up. No, my friend, they didn't mess it up. They simply took, and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, expanded, explained, and applied what Jesus taught and what He intended. Preaching should be Christocentric. There's a reason these men were called apostles. That's the Greek word, apostolos. It's from a Hebrew word as well, related, cognate word, shaliach. In the time of Christ, a shaliach was someone in the Jewish community who acted as an official representative. He had authority to speak for someone else. An apostle is someone sent as a representative, like an ambassador. Let me give you a more common illustration. Parents, you'll get this if you have more than one child, especially if you have several. Okay. Parents, did you ever send one of your kids to tell the other kids that dad or mom said, go wash up for dinner now? It doesn't matter if you send the youngest, right? The one that nobody pays attention to. Because if you send them and say, dad said, mom said, it's no longer them, they're merely the apostle. They're coming in the authority of someone else, and you best pay attention. And that's exactly the concept here. Someone else is speaking on behalf of Christ. And Folks, do we not see this throughout the New Testament? The entire book of Acts is about preaching Jesus. When the Sanhedrin is trying to put this thing down, what do they say? Quit speaking in His name. There is a centrality to this preaching. You look at the book of Acts, the seventh chapter. Stephen preaches this wonderfully long, biblical, theological survey message. And when he gets to the end, he cannot stop preaching until he gets to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, and and he says to them, you unrighteously, wickedly put Him to death. The response is to kill him. But even in his dying, what is his confession? As they are throwing stones and crushing the life out of him, behold, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, whether he's in Samaria or down to see the Ethiopian official, Who does he preach? Jesus. You remember that wonderful conversation. Philip's going along. The Lord says, walk by the chariot. Okay, I'll walk by the chariot. The Lord didn't have to tell him anything after that because he heard the Ethiopian reading. And in that day, he didn't read silently. He read aloud. And he's reading from an Isaiah scroll, which tells you the man had money. Because those were hand-lettered. And so Philip strikes up a conversation. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I? Unless somebody explains to me. Come here. And he gets up in the chariot. And the man had this wonderful question as he's reading from the text. About whom is he writing? Is Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? And we find that wonderful statement in there. And beginning at that scripture, Philip, preached Jesus to him and the man comes to saving faith it is Christ centered is biblically based if you look at the acts 2 sermon the day of pentecost it is rich with quotes from the old testament at acts chapter 3 after the healing of the man that was a cripple at beautiful gate Silver and gold, I don't have any, but what I have I'll give you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And Luke's comment, And the guy got up and then he's walking and leaping and praising God and causing a scene. As well you'd expect. And suddenly everybody's rushing to see what's going on because, wait a minute, I I just gave him some alms. What's he doing? Is he a phony? Has he been cheating me all these years? Here he is, walking, leaping, praising God and Peter finds an opportunity to preach. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. When Peter gets the chance to preach to Cornelius' household, Acts chapter 10, 43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Luke, in Acts chapter 17, when he describes Paul's practice when he goes into a community, Acts 17, too. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, these, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. An apostolic church has this apostolic model of Christ-centered, biblically-based preaching, and further, it is preaching that is filled with grace, and faith in the glory of God. Peter will tell the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. He's talking about himself as a Jew, them as Gentiles. Paul's words, for by grace, You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so no one may boast. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all, we ask or think according to the power at work in us. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Come to the final. What is an apostolic church? What is the apostolic model? Let's just consider briefly applying this apostolic teaching in our own church. What, is the, what are the means to get this done? Well, one is what we're doing right now the preaching ministry. Mark Dever put it this way, for pastors to know and understand what a local church should and can be and for pastors to teach this through the congregations, much of the blessings and benefits of good teaching in evangelical churches in America goes into the hearts of individuals and then perhaps into the lives of their families and friends, but then largely lost, and I love this phrase, in the sands of American individualism. If the preaching of the gospel and expositional preaching are the glorious fonts of life, The local church is to be the bowl, the container in which that life is caught and held up for display to a thirsty world. Pastors should know and understand and teach this is the most crying need in evangelical churches. My friends, we need the preaching ministry to be anchored in this apostolic witness. Now understand, I am not claiming that any of us that stand here and preach are apostles, for we are not. Not in any way in the sense of Peter, James, John, or Paul. But I will say this. If our preaching is anchored in this text, then we are preaching with apostolic authority. Not our authority, the Word's authority. And that's why this is so important. Please grasp this, my friends. What we do when we gather, all of it is needed. All of it is vital. All of it is essential. But when it comes to this matter of preaching, this must be so thoroughly anchored in the text that as we sit and we hear and we receive. It should be to us as God speaking. Please hear what I mean by that. I'm not claiming that somehow I am merely a voice. I'm not doing John the Baptist, all right? I'm saying, my friend, is the preaching anchors to the text. It is apostolic, and for our good, that should be our teaching ministry. Our teachers, from our little ones to our adults, fidelity to this apostolic doctrine, teach the word. We need clarity on this. We should be clear clear about who we are and what we believe. Reason for our confession of faith is for that clarity. We must never hide who and what we are. There are churches, and I've run into them, who seek to hide their theology. You can find it, but boy, you've got to search for it. And their comments and things like, well, doctrine really doesn't matter all that much. We just want to love Jesus. And of course, my response to that is, which Jesus? Who are you talking about? What is the content of this belief? That further means we should live out the theology we claim. Never lose sight of this, my brothers and sisters. Throughout the New Testament, and especially in the letters of Paul, what you find is this pattern. Here's what you're to believe. Here's what you're to do. This is the content. This is the character. Here's what you need to embrace. Here's how you ought to act. And those things must never be separated. Dear family, we should rejoice in the Lord's gift of the church. I still go back to the phrasing from Paul in Ephesians 3, that wondrous prayer, and he says in the 21st verse, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. To him be glory in the church. We confess, we believe in the local church. not perfect, not churches that look necessarily alike. I hope you all know, brethren, we've got other brothers and sisters all over this community and all over the world who have met, and they look different, and they do some things that are different. Doesn't mean they're wrong just means they're different. As long as they're adhering to this gospel and this apostolic reality, we ought to rejoice in that. As Gail prayed this morning, I wanted to weep as I think about the church in Afghanistan. We shall not know, I don't think, until the final day. But oh, beloved family, when I think about our brothers and sisters in that part of the world who are dying, dying, for our common faith, it shames me to think about how slovenly and slack we can be about our attitude, about the people. Father, our prayer is that this your word go deep into our lives and change us. May we truly embrace, may we truly confess, may we truly believe what it is to be the church. may we pray with our brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. let stand.